0: settle in. We're going to continue to worship together this morning. Thank you, Chris, for leading us across multiple floors, and thank you, Peyton, for singing thus. When I sing to myself and nobody else can hear, I sort of imagine, hope, wish that it sounded like Peyton, so don't burst my bubble. I know that it's more kazoo-like, but in my head, it sort of sounds more like you, so thank you. I do wanna issue greeting and say, we're glad that you're here. It's no accident that you're here. We say this all the time, but I wanna say it again. The fact that you can hear the sound of my voice and what we've done thus far is proof that there is a sovereign God who loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which means whatever happens already and whatever is going to happen for the rest of our time together I can promise you this with the full weight of scripture in my defense God absolutely wants to connect and to convey and to communicate to you so it only falls to us to listen to heed and to hear which I know can be difficult but I'm going to pray for us here in just a moment I'm going to pray that all of our distractions, all of our competing affections would be laid aside. I will tell you transparently, we're going to be studying a very challenging, oft misunderstood, misapplied passage. And so I need prayer as we go into this study this morning. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to continue in our series on 1 John. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that is inerrant. It is flawless. You are the greatest communicator in the cosmos. And you have made known that which you want us to know, to internalize, to feed on and to feast on. And yet, Father, we listen and we see through corrupt filters. And so would you, by your Holy Spirit, illumine this word. I confess, Lord, that I will more than likely speak errantly but that you have spoken inerrantly. And so would your words sound forth and not return void? Would you have your way with us? Would you encourage us? Would you equip us? Would you remind us that you love us? So I pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you've got your Bibles, and I trust that you do, I want to invite you to go ahead and open to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 that little letter between 2 John and 2 Peter. I'm going to go ahead and read our passage all the way through to sort of set the stage, and then we'll unpack it, then we'll try to apply it, and then we'll be done. 1 John, in chapter 2, this week beginning in verse 28. The Apostle John writes, And now, little children, abide in him. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That should make us all a tiny touch square me. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is God's word. And it must be, for nobody else would ever write such a delicate, dicey, potentially divisive passage. That's First John chapter 2. I want to start off this morning by talking about this wonderful aspect of the human being that I've been researching lately called mirror neurons. I am no brain surgeon. I am no rocket surgeon. I am no vegetable surgeon. I just love the concept of mirror neurons. These fascinating little components of our brains that do all sorts of incredible things in our lives, in our attitudes, in our relationships. Everybody has mirror neurons. All of us were created with these little receptors, these little perceptors in our minds that give us the ability to mirror, to actually experience the same sensation that we see somebody else experience. If you've ever seen someone get a paper cut and you went, "Mm," that's your mirror neurons firing. It's sort of a a direct bridge across space and time of empathy. You sort of feel what they feel. Have you ever seen someone else experience something painful? Maybe some of you are football fans and you happen to watch the quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys remove his foot in live action. And my forearms tingled and my abs, they're in there, trust me. My abs like ached, like I just felt physically unwell. That's a mirror neuron firing. We're told that amputees can still feel pain in the missing limb when they look at somebody else who has that limb or when they look at their other limb. If I've had this arm removed, I can still feel pain there when something happens to this arm. That's mirror neurons telling our brain that something is there. There is a connectivity that is beyond what we really can comprehend at this point. Mirror neurons are also responsible for an unexpected contagion pandemic that's been going on for a lot longer than COVID-19. We're finding out now that because of mirror neurons, depression is contagious. You grew up in a home with people who were depressive. You watched them closely enough. You picked up verbal and audio clues and visual clues, and you began to replicate those either subconsciously or completely unaware, and you began to pick up those traits. Depression is not just hereditary it's also contagious that's very helpful for us to know perhaps you've noticed that in many couples the longer they live together the longer they spend time together they begin to look like each other I'm not going to make eye contact with any of you but you know who you are I mean yes my wife and I both have very straight hair I know it's crazy The more time you spend with someone, the more you actually begin to look like one another. I see you up there, Joe and Karen Deming. It's true. It's because your face watches the other face, and you love that face. And subconsciously, your mirror neurons are emulating and replicating even the slightest little facial tick. And you begin to pick that up, and your face, over time, begins to morph into that. Be careful who you marry. Or more importantly, marry someone quick before they hear this. The point is, all of us, because of the reality of mirror neurons, are always being morphed into something or somebody. And so to quote that quote, that great theologian Robert De Niro, "What you looking at?" Because whatever you look at for long enough, you will become increasingly like. Which leads us to and provides our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this: We become what we behold. Perhaps you've heard me use this before. It's because it's in the text over and over and over again. We become what we behold. Now we're here in the middle of 1 John at the end of chapter 2. And John is an old guy. And he loves the Lord. Walked with the the King of kings and the Lord of lords who was a Galilean carpenter. And he spent at least three and a half years with him. Reclining on Jesus as they ate, hearing the things that Jesus talked about, knowing the sound of his voice, but then hadn't seen him for six decades. He loved the Lord loves the Lord and as such he loves the Lord's people and so all John wants for this church and the surrounding churches of Ephesus is that they would have an abiding assurance. It's the purpose of his letter because he saw in them that it was beginning to fade. It was beginning to wane and he says no I will not have it. You are to have abiding assurance. So let me very quickly unpack this passage as uh, adequately as I can, again, asking permission proactively to speak errantly. I'm probably going to say some things that I don't quite exactly mean. It's going to come out a little bit strange. Please bear with, give grace, default to the benefit of the doubt, and we'll all get through this together, all right? So back in chapter 2 and in verse 28, and now little children. See, John pivots. Last week, as we got to the almost end of chapter 2, John was exhorting them to abide in the announcement. To, to go deeper and deeper into the great story, the good news. Live, make your locus of life the gospel. And now, little children. It's not a term of condescension. It's John saying, gosh, my, my, my forearms tingle. I hurt for you so bad. I'm crazy about you all. Abide in him. Live in him. 23 times John will use the verb abide. Meno in the Greek. No other New Testament writer really uses this term. It's a favorite of his, and I get the impression it's because of the time that John spent with Jesus. And he just couldn't get enough of looking into the face of Jesus and abiding. And he'd give anything to be able to do that again. And right now, he is. Abide in him, so that. Always look for the so that's. They answer the question, why? Why should we abide in him? So that when he appears, not if. When he appears, do you see Jesus is coming back? That is a clear declaration that he is alive. He's not some pitiful martyr, some radical rebel rabbi from the ancient Near East. No, he is God. He is alive and he's coming again. So abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This verse has been misapplied, misunderstood for a couple millennia. This does not in any way, in any way, suggest the potential or possibility of a loss of salvation. It is to say, however, that, hey, those who are not prepared for his coming, you've not even thought about Jesus for three or four years when he comes in an instant. uh, That'll be awkward. You will have shame, not a loss of salvation but you haven't even thought about the one you claim to love, your Lord of lords, your King of kings, this death-proof Savior that we worship. Abide in him, live in there, so that when he appears, you will have confidence. You'll be knocking people out of the way to get to the front of the line to hug this Jesus. Not really. I will be. So that you will not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Hi yi, yi. So we might synthesize it down thus. Righteous is as righteous does, But please understand, when John talks about righteousness, he's not talking about being moral and decent and good or even voting the right way. <clears throat> this is righteousness. We know, he says, verse 29 if you know that he is righteous, which he is, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Why does John make a big deal about this? We have to remember. I have hoped, this is my sixth sermon in 1 John, and I've tried to say this every single week. 1 John is a letter written by a person to some people in a place at a period for a purpose. It's not just these meandering musings of an old guy. He's writing for a specific purpose. We are not the original recipients. They were dealing with a thing, and that thing was the false teaching of Gnosticism and Docetism that said Jesus could not possibly be God. The man Jesus could not possibly be God, but Messiah could not possibly be a man. Couldn't possibly be. You had to go way back into eternity past and have some secrets to try to find him. And you can be righteous on your own. You don't need this Jesus. You can be good enough on your own just by following our advice, by following our secrets. John says, I will have none of that. There is no righteousness apart from Jesus. So he's directly assaulting the affront of their false teaching. If you know that he is righteous, and he is, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There are no righteous people who have not been born of him. Can I say that that directly? You know some very good and moral and decent and properly voting people, but if they are not born of him, they are not righteous. They're just better at managing their mess than you are. And that counts for nothing in the eternal scheme of things. Now he's going to pivot in chapter 3. See what kind of love. See, I wish the ESV here was a little bit more wooden and accurate. The term here is more like the old King James translates it. It is, behold! John says, get a load of this. Don't just see. It is, behold the miracle. Get a load of this. Allow it to penetrate and pierce your affections, your attentions, behold the miracle. And this is the gospel. See what kind of love the Father has given us. Nah, it's too vanilla, that's water. It's lavished upon us, slathered us. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That is the gospel. The undeserving receive the ultimate by the good and great and sovereign and glorious. While we were yet sinners, God said, they're my favorite. And he sent his sendable self, the Son of God, the Christ, to die in our place. Behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Not tolerated by God. Not merely accommodated by God. No, 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 no. Children. Some of you know this. Nobody in your world has the kind of access that your child does, sometimes even including your spouse. If your two-year-old says, Daddy or Mama, the world has to stop. You've got to respond. We should be called children of God. And he's going to get into this a little bit later. We never lose that station nor that identity. No matter how bad your kids mess up, they're still your kids. The relationship might be slightly dented and out of sorts, But the ontological, the reality of the relationship, never changes. Behold the miracle of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is a great pastoral, apostolic giving of identity, a reminder. You are children of God. Nothing else even approaches the level of that magnitude. You are a child of God Most High. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Rejected God, rejected his son. So don't be surprised when people don't understand who you are, who you love, what you believe, and what you live for. Verse 2, beloved. See, John won't quit. This old guy's got no time for just literary gymnastics. Beloved, that's the gospel. You and I are loved in spite of ourselves. God has a reason for loving you, and you aren't it. Such good news. Because if you were the reason, you're probably going to be out of luck like me. You are beloved because God says so. The ultimate parent. He's the one that can say that. I love you because I say so. Beloved. We are God's children now. Now, 1 John 3, 2 may be one of my favorite verses in the Bible ever, or at least it is today, and here's why. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. John's going to do some of the most amazing grammatical Greek wordplay. He starts off in present tense, and then he's going to go to what we call the proleptic tense. What is future history? It's as yet to occur, but it is just as certain as what happened yesterday. It's future history. I know that sort of upsets our delicate sensitivities. John doesn't care. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. That should start us salivating. Wait a minute. The appearing. He's already talked about the appearing. Jesus? Oh, yes. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, because he's coming again, this next clause ought to take us away. John says in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold the miracle that we are loved. It's astonishing. We have all that we need in Christ, the Father's love. We have all that we could possibly imagine. All of our wants, all of our desires, all of our lusts that we talked about two weeks ago, all of that is actually satisfied in God. All of our insecurities, all of our uncertainties, all of our fears, uncertainties, doubts, all of those things are all satisfied in God now. That's present tense, but wait. By the time we get to verse two, it just gets better. That's who we are now, already, already. And what we will be has not yet appeared. He continues on. Because we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. (sighs) Because, took me years and years and years to wrestle with this word placement and understand. We shall see him as he is and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. What's he like? 7.2 pound baby Jesus in a little manger out in a cave someplace. Nope, that's not who Jesus is. So he was for a very brief moment. No, nope. Jesus wearing a tuxedo shirt because I'd like my Jesus to party a little bit. Nope, that's not who Jesus is anymore either. Nope, never was, point of fact. Who is this Jesus that we shall be like? For that, we have to get John's description of what the risen Lord Jesus is. Is like So I'm going to turn to Revelation chapter 1, and I'm going to read this, and I'm going to encourage you, invite you, with your sanctified imagination to hear this as I read it over you, and close your eyes. We've got security stationed around the room. Nobody's going to take your stuff unless it's really valuable, to close your eyes and allow your heart and your mind to envision this. This is John on the island of Patmos verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1 I John your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying write what you have seen in a book And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and Smyrna, Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one, like a son of man, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. This is Jesus. This is Jesus right now. When he appears, we shall be like him. Why? Why, John? Why? Because we will see him as he is. In an instant, every single mirror neuron you and I have will fire. And everything that is not of him, that is of the corruption, the fallenness of the world, is gone. We will be like him because we will see him as he actually is now. And it will be complete. Complete. Now, we have to understand that that's what John's talking about, or the rest of this passage will make no sense whatsoever. We're going to get into some whitewater passages in verses three and following. You have to understand that that's what John's talking about. That's already and not yet. It has begun. We are God's children. What we we will be has not yet appeared Jesus, but when He does, we will be. Will we ever be God? Of course not but we will be like him in his resurrection body. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. I invite you to study the passages in the gospels where Jesus in his resurrection body just shows up in places behind locked doors. He cooks great fish. I don't know exactly, but it's going to be way better than we can ever imagine. So then verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John's going, is this not true of you? Is this not your hope? If it is your hope, you will be busily anticipating the arrival of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I know most of us here are probably not British, but if the Queen of England was to swing by your place this afternoon for tea and Pop-Tarts, you'd probably vacuum. You probably would just because, I mean, it's the Queen of England for Pete's sake. Time's a gajillion. He's coming and he's coming Nothing else has to occur on the prophetic calendar before his return. And so we purify ourselves. No, we don't atone for our own sin, but we are actively engaged in fixing our eyes on him, ever increasingly being transformed into his likeness so that when he comes, we, we are purifying ourselves just as he himself is pure. Verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, I wish this is the best translation, but it isn't. The translators of the NIV and the ESV and pretty much every other translation are trying to help because it's such a hard verse. They are making an interpretation as they make a translation. The text says, quite literally, verse 4, everyone who sins practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. But that can't actually be what's going on because in chapter one, John says, You're going to sin. All of us sin. If we claim it without sin, we make God a liar. When you sin, confess your sin and he's faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So, what's going on? John's trying to tell them that what the false teachers are spreading, that sin doesn't matter, this body's just going to burn, it doesn't matter, you're redeemed already, you can live however you want in your body. John says, That's not true. That is false. If you have that attitude about sin, perhaps you've never actually been regenerated. Perhaps you're not a new creation at all. Anyone who sins is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. The believer had his or her lawlessness nailed to the cross of Christ. That's it. It's over. It's done. It's dead. You will never be accused of lawlessness again. And you will still struggle with sin. It's the already and the not yet. But if you say, I can do whatever I want, I'm a Christian, I have no compunction, no conviction, no issue, no regret over this, then there's a very good chance that right now is a great time for you to ask yourself a hard question. Am I really regenerate? Does that grieve me when I sin? In other words, there's an incongruity to sin in the life of the Christian. When we sin, It conceals who we actually are as children of God. That's not who we are. We're acting outside of ourselves. It's not natural for us anywhere anymore. Is it possible? Yes. But what John's also saying is there's an incongruity of sin now. There's an impossibility of sin later. And that's very good news. When we sin, if you're a believer, you know this. It just puts everything out of rhythm. It's wrong. You're grieved. You're concealing your true identity, which is a child of God, and you're clutching to some other false teaching that that thing will bring you pleasure and fulfillment. It won't. never has. John says there in verse 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know, one of two purpose statements in this passage, that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. See, it's an already. You are found by God in Christ. In Christ, there is no sin. He came to take away sin. So how could you say that it's okay to go on sinning? No, no, no. Jesus came to take away sin. And you're still going to fall. Why? What's going on there? Because judicially, forensically, God has redeemed the spiritual aspect of you. And you are found in Christ. And there's no sin there. And yet, you are also physical. You're not two separate beings. You have two separate aspects. Your physical being is not yet redeemed. Can I get an amen on the third floor? That's right. Your physical being is not yet redeemed. It's still corrupt and fallen and subject to the corrosion of the creation. But there will come a day when even your physical aspect will be fully redeemed. He came to take away sin. And in him, there is no sin. Verse six, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning or sins. Because if that's your reality, abiding in Christ, then sin is not your natural pattern. Sin's not who you are. It's not what you do. There's an incongruity, ultimately an impossibility. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If I think I can just sin without any consequence, then I don't know this person, Jesus, who loves me who gave himself for me. Verse seven, little children, let no one deceive you. Why does he say that? Because they were being deceived. Someone was trying to tell them lies. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. If you find anyone who actually is practicing biblical righteousness, enrightifying their surroundings, not just being good, moral, and decent, there is a difference. If you find anyone who is actually enrightifying their surroundings, That is of the Lord and the Lord only. They're not just trying hard to be better. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Second purpose statement, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Two purposes, why did Jesus come? Tells us right here, take away sin from us and to destroy the works of the devil, who from the very beginning has been trying to thwart, upend, invert the program of God. So Jesus came to upend and thwart and invert the plan of the devil. I say this all the time. It's as C.S. Lewis wonderfully said, The rightful king has landed, and we are to be about his campaign of sabotage, of projecting, promoting, purveying righteousness that only comes from and through him. Verse 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. That's a strange word. Nobody knows exactly what that word means, the seed. Is it the spirit? Is it the word? Is it his nature? Yes. Yes. It's all those things. It abides in us, this divine spark. This is John referring to the Gnostics who said, you have some little divine flicker in you, and you now have to travel back through all these different secret paths to try to get to that secret. John says, no, it's in you already. You are a child of God now. God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident. Wow. Here's the evidence. Who are the children of God? Woof. And who are the children of the devil? That might sound sort of harsh, sort of binary to us, not nearly as harsh as Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 44, who told the Pharisees, who were very good and moral and decent, that their father was the devil and then Jesus passed the plate because they were, no, 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 he didn't do that. That was harsh. John's picking up on that same language. You are either born of God or by default in nature, your father is the devil. It's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Are we in fact brothers for others or not? A great well-meaning people, a great number of well-meaning people say, listen, I I don't know about all that other stuff. I just know, I, I just don't want to go to hell one day, and I want to go to heaven one day. That's all I know. And sin, man, that's just a part of life that just sort of happens. I'm just going to sneak in the side door smelling of smoke. Not a biblical posture that you and I want to adopt. So we have to ask ourselves, is sin for us actually as distasteful to Jesus or to us as it is to Jesus? No, but as our mirror neurons fire, as we look ever increasingly at him, ever increasingly, we know what he knows and we want what he wants. Let me just give you a couple quick landing implications from this passage and we'll wrap this up. Four quick applications. We've said our big idea again is we become what we behold. And it's a convicting question. What do we actually spend time beholding? What are we looking at? We become, we can't help it, what we behold. First implication, doing is the test of being. Doing is the test of being. I'm not saying that doing earns or achieves or accomplishes. I'm not saying that. I'm saying doing is the test of being. I know it's a tired, old expression, but I like it a lot. Possession is different than profession. In other words, we've all known people who said, A prayer, a sequence of words strung together when they were very young perhaps because some well-intentioned leader got them to repeat the words and now they profess to be a Christian. And yet there is no seed of God within them. There is no regeneration. There is no resemblance whatsoever to their Lord and their maker. John seems to be describing a radical change in a person, a regeneration Or the things I used to want, I no longer want, or at least not with the same intensity. If I claim to be righteous, but never actually manifest any righteousness in thought or word or deed toward anyone else, then perhaps I have only ever really professed, but never actually possessed. It would be a really good time for all of us to ask ourselves that convicting question. Can I talk a good game, or is this actually who I am wanting to enrichify my surroundings my family my friends my co-workers my community second point goes like this sin is a really big deal now i know that's a dead horse that i flog with frequency around here because i feel like it continues to emerge in the text we cannot must not ever wink at sin sin is a really big deal we have a tendency, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, to pretend that we're unaware or that God doesn't care about our sin. But we are aware, and God does care. And it has implications, and it has consequence. It always splatters onto somebody else. It matters. It matters to a person. And when we think about our sin, the things that we think, that we say, that we do, are we cognizant? Are we appreciating that what I think and say and do was nailed to the cross of Christ in his person. Those things that I do flippantly without thinking harmed a person who was good and lovely and innocent and loving. And my rebellion is a hammer stroke into his arm and his feet. Sin is a really big deal. the Gnostics and the false teachers of the early church were telling these people, it doesn't matter, it's all going to burn. John says, I'll have none of it. I watched him die. You will not minimize or trivialize sin. I saw him become it. Sin is a really big deal. See, God is for us. And when we sin, it grieves him. Every bit as much as if you, if you're a parent, saw your child playing with a live electrical wire, it would grieve you and it would say, no, that is so bad for you. Since God is for us and he is all wise, then whatever he tells us to do must by definition actually be for our best. He really does know better. And when we sin, we think that we do. We seize sovereignty from him. Your sin, my sin, is a really big deal. But praise God, it is still no match for his grace which is why John will call us beloved over and over and over again. Sin is a really big deal. Point three, the enemy is real. If you happen to be one of these people in our day and age, in the 21st century, that think Satan or the devil is just some metaphor of a cultural construct of things that go bad occasionally, let me tell you, you are a direct opposition with a clear teaching of Scripture. The enemy, the devil, is a real Entity. He is a person, not a human, but he's a person and he's active, but he is limited in what he can do. His campaign is sin and death. Please hear that. His campaign is sin and death. And John tells us, Why did the Son of Man come? Why did the Son of God come? To take away sin and to undo the work of destruction of the enemy, to undo sin and death. And he is defeated at the cross. Jesus accomplished both of those purposes, to take away sin and to deal with death and destruction. He defeated them both in his own body at the cross. And so it's like Satan took an arrow to the heart at the cross, but he's still active. You might think of the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. The Nazi empire was essentially defeated and done, but that was the fiercest fighting. I love how Alistair Begg puts this. He says, God has tied Satan to the trash at the end of the driveway. He's going in the garbage. Over oh, right now, he kind of runs around the yard and messes stuff up, but make no mistake, he's going in the truck. I like that. He does make messes, and he is active, and he is dangerous, but only within limits. They are not equals, Satan and God. He is real, but he is defeated, and so we need not fear him. So since we become what we behold, don't eyeball your enemy. Don't heed his alluring temptations. Fourth and final point. Think of yourself the way God thinks of you. I can't make a big enough deal about this, but I shall now try. Think of yourself volitionally, intentionally, deliberately the way God thinks of you. Many of us still walk around this world thinking of ourselves as people who just got saved and now we just sort of have to schlep through life until we go to heaven. But that is not the biblical model of who we are now. Now we're to think of ourselves the way God thinks of us. That includes feeling about and seeing ourselves the way God does. That's interesting. What he thinks is actually more weighty and more accurate and more important than what we think and feel because he's completely correct and isn't in any way marred by sin like we are. I might have an insecurity complex. I feel this and this and thus. Well, I'm wrong. What God feels about me is more accurate than what I feel about me. Remember, when you and I became Christians, nothing about our physical person actually changed in that moment. Our spirit aspect was redeemed, and we are found by God to be in Christ. But as we said when we studied through Romans in chapters 3 and 6, our physical self is still a corrupt part of this world. Not two separate beings, but already as we gaze upon the face of our Savior through His teaching and example in Scripture, we begin to change even now to look increasingly like Him. We have to understand, spiritually, we are sinless. Paul says in Romans 6, when I sin, it's not really me, it's sin within me, and it's still me. But it is the corrupt, as yet unredeemed physical aspect of me, my spirit is in Christ fully. Our justification means that God chooses to see us differently. We're not actually all that different in the world, but he chooses to see us differently, intentionally, as if we already are that greater reality. And so we have the opportunity and the capacity to see ourselves the way God does. So when we sin, it's simply a failure to believe that. I want to say it again. When we sin, it's simply a failure to believe the gospel. We become what we behold. John told us that the child of God presently has that spark, that seed of God within us. Whatever you envisioned, whatever you imagined, whatever you thought of when I had you close your eyes and we read Revelation 1, that Jesus, in a sense, in the spirit realm, lives within you and you in him. We're to think about ourselves thus. I'm gonna invite you to pray with me. And I'm going to to ask you to do some real inventory in your own life. Is that true of you? Or are you a professor, someone who has never actually been a possessor? I'm going to pray for us. invite you to pray on all three floors, perhaps at home. And let's ask that the Lord would do what only he can do. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, what you have told us about ourselves in this passage What John was trying to clarify to the church of Ephesus, may we heed and hear as well. Father, if there's anyone here this morning on any of these floors or at home listening to this who does not know you but simply relies on some words that they may have said, I pray, God, that you would give them peace, that you would regenerate them, that you would usher them into a saving knowledge of your Son, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and they would ever increasingly stare at your face through the picture we're given of Jesus in your word, that we would begin to resemble and reflect him. So Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would do for them what you have done for us. For the rest of us, Father, who have begun to negotiate and compromise with the world and to wink and nudge at sin, would you captivate us all over again that that's not who we are? That's not who we are. And Father, for those of us who are still struggling with sin, either in a pattern or at a point, would you remind us of grace? Would you comfort us, God, by reminding us that our greatest sin may still be ahead of us? But would you give us grace and lead us not into those pitfalls? Father, we do thank you for your word, for the time we had to gather together this morning. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.